Hey, Ray. Hello, David. How you doing? Good, man. I'm doing really good. You know, it's been cold and You said it's blowing snowy. sideways today or? Yeah, you know, but last week it was, well, last two weeks it's been frozen. I've been shoveling a lot of snow. Right. And then two nights ago it turned to rain and now it's raining. So rain, we're rain. obviously. It is biblical, dude. It's biblical, but we're obviously recording this in the height of the Ketchikan summer. <laughs> yeah, when I say biblical, it means 40 days and 40 nights of rain, and it's no big deal right, here. Right, yeah. All right, well. Until I see the guy next door building an ark, then I'll oh, start yeah, worrying. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Great fossil news. You know, our uh, <gasps> most recent, one of our recent interviewees, Dean Lomax. Yeah. He is part of a discovery. They drained a reservoir in England. Really? And they found a 33-foot ichthyosaur. Oh, I saw that in the paleo news feed this morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and stupidly, the news calls it a sea dragon. Whoa. I, you know, it's... Well, you know. Oh, gotta, get, gotta, get, gotta get eyes on the story. Yeah, man. well, yeah. Anyway, 10 meters long. And uh, it's one of the greatest fossilized finds in British paleontology. Oh, really? That's what they say. Uh, and Dean Lomax was part of it. This guy, listen to this. They drained a reservoir to kind of clean it out and stuff. And this guy notices these vertebrae sticking out of the bottom. What is this? And then they start excavating. I love those finds. That's just so cool how it just is. What well, are they saying? It's a happenstance, you know? It's just. Well, that's, that's jolly good news. But, you know, uh, ichthyosaurs over in my neck of the woods are twice as big as Yeah, that, how dude. big is that big one up there in Canada? Well, the one in British Columbia was approaching 70 feet. Oh, my goodness. So this is a baby. You know, that's <laughs> a baby, wee baby. But anyways, it's very cool. And good on Dean Lomax. He's yeah. in the story. You know, I mean, we're like, you know, swimming with the big fish. I know. Too, and you know? we've like, got our a bigger fish to fry. news story. It's like one of our, oh, man, today. Yeah, and it takes place. Uh, and he's in, he's in England. He's in, I'm he's, pretty yeah, sure he's in, in Norwich, England. which... Uh, Norwich, he's in Cromer, England. I looked up, looked it up, and he's at fifty-three degrees north, and I'm at fifty-five oh. degrees north. So we might have. But the I same believe weather. Cromer's in Norwich. It's you a know, Shire. England, yeah. Anyway, like, well, well, you you perform over there. Yeah. I, I have no clue. I've been to London. Yeah, I've been all once. over that gray slog of a beautiful country. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I never heard of him until you suggested him as a guest. Tell me about him, and let's get him on the. Let's get him on I've the, been talking the line. About, uh, get him on the line. Yes. I bet I, I can't do my British accent when you start doing the Australian accent. Henry G. He is uh, one of the, the editors at Nature, which is the biggest scientific publication in the world, arguably. And they do argue about that kind of stuff. Sure. But Henry G. is a paleontologist, but he's really more of kind of a an editor, really, in the science world. Yeah. And, and he's author. a cool guy and author of many, many books for the uh, for. Guys like you and me, yeah. and you and I have both been reading his latest one, and I absolutely yeah, love this Yeah, it's great, book. and he is eloquent and exquisite in his quotes, and, and the way he takes a very droll subject, which is billions of years of life history. Well, well droll to the average non-scientific, non-paleo person, it, it, he really just lightens up the history of life on this planet, and it's just fantastic. Well, we're talking about the book, uh, Very Short History of Life on in Earth. In 12 and... Plithy Pithy. Wait. In 12 pithy, pithy. pithy chapters. And what does pithy mean? I believe it's a Shakespearean. It means small. Small, like very precise statements. Oh, you've, you've looked that up? Is that what it means? Well, well, yeah, pithy. Oh. Have pithy on me, no. will you, sir? It's different than pity. 
but pithy. Okay, but anyway, actually, it's, it's let, not... you're getting off this. We need to call him up and uh, get him on the line. <laughs> Let's get him on the line. I'm so excited. I really, I, I dreamt about this. Uh, I'm really nervous to beat the guy, but it's going to be so much fun. Call him up, man. Hey, Dave, meet Henry G., British paleontologist and an evolutionary biologist. He's a prolific writer, a blues musician, Tolkienist, and senior editor of Biological Sciences at the scientific journal Nature. His latest popular book is A Very Short History of Life, 4.6 Billion Years in 12 Pithy Chapters. <laughs> Henry, I am super excited to meet you. Welcome to the show and meet my buddy, David Strassman. Hello. Hey, Henry. Hi, David. Hi, Ray. Good to meet you. Uh, exquisitely written. Exquisitely Thank written. Thank you. Hello, hello, David. Hello, Ray. Can I do a fanboy moment, please? Sure, sure. Right, here, here it comes. Here it comes. Okay. Squee! Right, done now. <laughs> was that it? <laughs> that, that was it. Well, you know my work. Yeah, I do very much for a long time. Thank you so much. Uh, in fact, you actually you ran a review of my book, Rapture of the Deep in Nature. So that's the only time I've I, ever really been in a big deal. I scientific... did. My you did. God. Yeah. Well, I bought wow. Rapture of the Deep. I bought Rapture of the Deep. Well, I've been a fan of your T-shirts for a long time, and uh, I bought Rapture of the Deep at a paleo convention because I thought it looked just like the inside of my son's brain. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, uh, so so I saw Rapture of the Deep. Yeah, it's an enduring uh, classic uh, in the G household. And, but, and I'm uh, sitting here with a mutual admiration society. Oh, but let me right. ask you we'll, this. We'll, we'll knock it off. Henry, uh, are you a paleo nerd? I am a paleo nerd. Prove I'm a it. Card carrying. Well, I haven't got any fossils in here. I've got a basket full of fossil echinoids in the next room. Oh. Echinoids. Um, I love it. My earliest years was in in South East London, uh, uh, quite close to an old old museum called the Horniman Museum, uh, which is a marvelous old fashioned museum. You know, the kind of museum that has a bit of everything. It mm -hmm. has stuffed animals, totem poles, Egyptian mummies, skeletons. And my mum would say that she'd wheel me and uh, in my stroller uh, into the Horniman Museum, uh, and uh, I would insist on being parked in front of the most gory, grisly, scary dissections and <laughs> Egyptian mummies and and everything. Uh, and but believe it or not, I mean, you guys will appreciate this, but. Um, Back in the mid-60s, dinosaurs were uncool. Dinosaurs what? were not really popular. This was before the... Uh, before the... Um, the Bob Barker the, revolution. Yeah, before well, that. So they, That's in the UK, uh, Henry, but uh, go oh, ahead. Oh, well, yeah. But um, So uh, when I was uh, five, I was given this book, this kid's book. I've still got it. It's called The Look and Learn Book of the Wonders of Nature. Book mm -hmm. for kids. Hello. Uh, and uh, it's got all sorts of amazing things in it, like, you know, geezers and hibernating bears. And yeah, yeah. All Is sorts that the of original book from when you were a child? Yeah, that's the same one. And wow. Ruffle and, about and there's nothing about dinosaurs in it. Now, what? a book like... I know, I know, a book like that but now... maybe it's about contemporary nature, not about no, paleo. No, no, there, there's always oh, something that would Ray, that Ray would appreciate, I've just found. Um, <laughs> there... A long way home for the salmon, a picture oh, of salmon yes. migration. Yes. Um, and it does have a section on fossils. There they are, about fossils. There's an ichthyosaur, and there's some ammonites and a fossil leaf. Uh, and nothing at all 
about dinosaurs at all. There's a a coelacanth. Coelacanth, yeah. And, and other so things, it but, all changed. Well, on the back, this is the punchline. Uh -huh. uh, on okay. the back, it was this picture. Ah. Now, your your listeners can't see this picture, so I'll describe it. It's a kind of mashup of what paleo nerds will know as the Zeilinger um, Age of Reptiles. Yeah, mural. there seems to be the, the whole Mesozoic in there in one picture. In just one picture. Now, it's from there the is Peabody no... mural, yes. Yeah, exactly. It's a... I didn't know that at the time. But I didn't know what these creatures were. Really? Age five. Now, you know, kids these days know the names of 10 dinosaurs before they're potty trained. But I didn't know what they were. And there is no caption or legend in the book to explain what they are. They're <laughs> just there. So then and they I, were tantalizing you. What? Yeah, what? Uh, what are these, Mom? They, they were. But, but how did you go from that interest to uh, wanting to know the difference between a cow and a Paleolithic wash basin? Right. Right, yeah. <laughs> if I had a pound for every time anyone had made that joke, I'd have eight hundred and seventy-four pounds. But he, <laughs> um, but when I I will come to that because when I was five, <laughs> they took me. They, my parents, took me to the Natural History Museum in London, and there it all just clicked. That was wow. instantly my spiritual home. I saw the dinosaurs. Oh, you did, um, I. Yeah, and they it was just, you know, epiphany. Was that your come to Darwin moment, as they say? Yeah, yeah, but also <laughs> the thing that interested me more than the dinosaurs was the haul of fossil fish. Yes, Now, speaking my like, language. It's like the electric banana. Don't look for it, it's not there anymore. And my good friend, Per Alberg, said, yeah, I was the other ner nerdy kid in that haul of fossil fish because... There was no one else. Uh, and But I always liked the, the end nearest the beginning when people were trying to find out where fish came from. Uh, and uh, uh. I, I was less interested in near the end with the more modern or Mesozoic, but it was the early, the early stuff, how, where these things came from. But in, in the way, I've never left the Natural History Museum. And I had, you know, I was... I went to the university in Leeds in Yorkshire uh, and I was going to do a PhD on fossil fish, um, but due to a, uh, a miscalculation with funds and timing, I ended up doing uh, with uh, fossil cows. While I was still an undergraduate, I was very fortunate to get a vacation studentship at the Natural History Museum. Uh, this started when my professor Leeds, who was a wonderful man, Robert McNeil Alexander, he's now passed, fantastic fellow. He was an expert on biomechanics and he wrote um, books on paleontology and other things. And um, he asked me what I wanted to do with my life. And I said I wanted to be a vertebrate paleontologist, which I had no idea I wanted to be. It just slipped into my head at the uh -huh. time. Yeah. Now, now Neil, Neil uh, leaned over and said, you realise there aren't many openings in that field. Now, right. I have to say, Neil was a, a tall, kindly man with a long white beard, and he was a kind of a cross between Gandalf, Professor Dumbledore, <laughs> and Obi-Wan Kenobi, and possibly Ray. Uh, you realise, yes, yes. Yes, and uh, he, he was trying to persuade me that this was not the droid I was looking for, but he said, <laughs> he said, there are these vacation studentships at the Natural History Museum. So to cut a long story slightly less long, they sent a lot of projects we could uh, work on, and I decided to uh, do the apply for the project that was the most obscure, and that was um, 
terraspid fishes. Oh, that was going to. So I got the job, and indeed I learned I had been the only applicant. And <laughs> um, but then this was the early eighties, and I was working with Colin Patterson, Peter Forey, Brian Gardner, and of course by extension Don Rosen. I was working with the bad boys. I was working with the revolutionary cladists. Now, all the other people in the museum shunned them, and they used to drink at a different pub at lunchtime. <laughs> um, Those cladists will do that. They're yeah, they, they, yes. they drank at the cladists' arms. Uh, don't look for that now either. That's now a posh brasserie <laughs> or something. Uh, and they and Brian Gardner, who's also passed by recently, Brian and Colin and Peter used to sink the most amazing amount of beer. And basically, they exerted a fascination on the young Deuterostome that I was. These were mad, bad and dangerous to know. They had an allure. So um, I worked on terraspids and I worked on uh, from the old red sandstone. And can and you define a terraspid for me? Uh, uh, a a, a terraspid uh, is a kind of jawless fish about, about so big. They, so Devonian? They have, uh, Devonian, Silurian, Devonian, uh, probably uh, they were extinct by the end of the Devonian. Uh, they, uh, in, internally, they would have looked like a lamprey, uh, but their front end was covered in a bony head shield. Okay. Uh, they had tail fins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's one. Yeah, I know what that uh, is. They yeah. had tail fins, uh, but they didn't have any other paired fins. Um, they had long schnozzies, presumably. So they were a swimming finger. <laughs> yeah, they were armored. But but Henry, let me let me just jump in here. So cool, cool Paleozoic fishes. But then you took a turn into Ice Age bison in Britain, and you know we Americans like to think that we own bison's. Yeah, but. The Brits, you guys. I got this um, grant to go to Cambridge uh, to do Ice Age bison, and I thought mm, I really wanted to do fish. But being a cladist, I just realised that bison were just highly derived fish, uh, evolved <laughs> like for, for evolved for locomotion in water of negative depth. Uh, uh, I, highly, that's highly one dumbed. of my favorite quotes I have Wait, right is here. That, is that what land is? So land is a water of negative depth. Land is well, water depth. of negative depth. Yeah. If I, may, when... actually, if yeah. I can, I'm going to quote my, our guest here. Most vertebrates even today are fishes. With this perspective, the tetrapods, those vertebrates that have made the move onto land, can be seen as a rather strange group of fishes that have become adapted for living in water of negative depth. I so, love that. So, thank, thank you. So, so that that's what cladism does to you. It gives it kind of the perspective. But all I, but I didn't go into the field, which I is a regret because in Britain, from top to bottom and side to side, are museums and collections, big museums, small museums, public collections, full of boxes labelled boss or bison question uh, mark, not the skulls. Because um, you can tell the skull. The metatarsal bones, probably. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Loads of uh, loads of skeletal bones, and they look very, very similar, and nobody's been able to tell the difference. So, really, my uh, my project was to learn to tell the difference between cows and bison. In fact, the paper that came of it, I wanted to call it "How to Tell the Difference Between Cows and Bison," but my advisor advised against it and had a very much longer highfalutin title. Uh, but in the Ice Age, the whole of the Northern Hemisphere was covered in bison. 
I mean, you couldn't move for bison. They were absolutely everywhere. They yes. are the most among the most common vertebrate fossils you can find. When um, did they die out in, in England? Oh, goodness me. Same probably, with the Megaloceros? I mean, the same uh, time, yeah, 12,000 years ago? It was probably about the same time as mammoths and uh, Irish elk, but I think they were probably all gone by the maximum of 26,000. They're just boxes full of stuff. So I had loads and loads of material uh, to do uh, measurement on, and it's all in my thesis, which stays unread uh, in Cambridge. <laughs> and I never got round to writing it up, except for that one paper. While we're talking bison, in Lascaux and Altamira, all the lovely bison that we see painted on those beautiful walls, those are the species aurochs, or the common name is no, aurochs? Uh, well, that's the funny thing. I've seen a print of a bison labeled aurochs. Aurochs, but aurochs yeah. is actually the name of the cow, the wild wild okay it was furious, it was furious. the wild progenitor <laughs> of the cow the wild progenitor of buttercup and daisy is the wild ox or aurochs that lived in europe until 1627 when the last one was shot in poland uh, but the bison on the cave paintings is right. probably bison priscus priscus which, which we have which here was... in alaska that's right that's that's blue babe one of the most perfect specimens is uh, Blue Babe from Blue Babe. Babe, yeah. yeah. And, right. uh, oh, Blue Babe is a phenomenal beast, <laughs> and uh, I've spent a lot of time staring at Blue Babe, killed by <laughs> lions, and yeah. ended up in a stew that Dale ate later. But I think what we <laughs> want to do is jump forward here in time. Um, you got your PhD at Cambridge, not not <laughs> too shabby, sir. But <laughs> then you you, uh, you got a job at a certain magazine. People ask me, how do you get a job at Nature? I said, well, don't ask me, because I got mine by the most peculiar set of circumstances. Uh, I was finishing off my PhD, and I decided that, paleo nerd or not, I didn't have really the kind of focus you need to be a, a research scientist. I was more of a writer. I was running the graduate student magazine. I was writing for the college magazine. You know, writers just can't help writing. And my PhD, I was writing like a book. Uh, so, um, which got it failed the first time. I had to go and oh, make really? it more. Yeah, I had to go and make it more boring. Less uh, uh, readable. Well, I was comforted when I, I read an essay by the late science fiction writer Isaac Asimov, who paid his way through college by selling science fiction to pulp magazines and learning how to be a writer. And when it came to write up his PhD, he said, I've been learning how to be a good writer for so long, I was worried I wouldn't be able to write badly enough to write my <laughs> thesis. Um, so I got I, I was writing up my thesis and my advisor put a, a, an advert on my desk, Nature Wanted an Assistant Editor, one of the people who handled the manuscripts. So I applied for that job and didn't get it. So one Friday, I was in the basement of the museum in Cambridge, and the phone goes, and the technician, Ray, he, pa he passed the phone to me and said, it's for you, it's the editor of Nature. So I go, cool, you know, not often people, uh -uh. people have phone calls like that. So Maddox said to me, I'm offering you a job. And this was just coming up to Christmas. So I thought, after Christmas, you know, this was a Friday, you know, coming up to Christmas, things were winding down. After Christmas, I thought maybe in the spring, he said, no, Monday at 9.30 in the morning. <laughs> uh, so I, I had to suddenly move there and I was apprenticed, as it were, on a three-month contract. Longest three-month contract anyone's ever had. Time is very flexible. 
<laughs> and uh, they they said, um, what we want you to do is write a news story about radiological protection guidelines. And I said, who? Uh, and <laughs> and uh, they said, oh, no hurry. Uh, we want 300 words by, by lunchtime. Um, and so <laughs> after that, I became very skilled at writing authoritatively in a great hurry about something I didn't know anything about. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but surely, surely you have to have some detail. Yeah. And it has to pass some sort of scrutiny. Well, don't call me Shirley. Uh, the what, <laughs> what, what happened was that um, the reason they hired me was they didn't have a writer to fulfil a contract that Maddox had made with the London Times to write a nature science story on the op-ed page of the London Times. So uh, I was that guy. Wow. Uh, and this was like being picked for Manchester United after yeah. kicking a ball around in, uh, on the village square. Uh, so I learned on the job how to find a story, how to write 600 words in a few hours on something I didn't know much about. Uh, so I got a, a Maddox. He didn't train me. He just he just let me get on with it and make my own mistakes. And that's how I learned, by just doing it. I saw in one of your lectures that Nature receives around 500 submissions a week. You end up publishing 10. Yeah, uh, something and like you, that. And, and you call the papers manuscripts. We're here in the U United States. We seem to call them papers. But you send manuscripts for approval to your colleagues, yeah. which, which is through emails. Yeah. And then, then it goes to referees, which are located around the world. Is mm -hmm, that correct? Mm -hmm. Can you yeah. kind of describe that, that process in two well, words or less? Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> Right. Uh, oh, I just wanna... wanted. I just wanted to add. Yes, you know, I'm I'm an artist, and David is an entertainer, a ventriloquist by trade, and. Well, so so Ray, when you're talking, it's actually David talking. Yes, and my you. hand right. is up his, so well, he's no, that that makes me... I can't see. I can't see your <laughs> your right hand. That makes your, me your the dummy. Hand. Yes, but here, me being the dummy, I stumbled into these collaborations with scientists. I have, I've been to art school and all that. I don't know the first thing about how the scientific process works. I don't know how professional science really even happens. And so that's what Dave and I are talking about. Like, you know, I didn't know what a paper was. Like, you know, that's something I did in high school. But how does the <laughs> scientific then, process? Ray, yeah, but we know we, through our through this podcast, we've learned about the scientific submission process. Yes, but, but we, there are certain journals. And, yes. And... There is basically, there's science and nature, there's cell biology, but science, nature is because of its impact factor is considered the most important science journal out there. So, so I, and that's the setup to the question, how does it work? If I publish my paper, I want to get my paper published, I send it to you. But what I think you have happens? to call it a manuscript first. Well, I can call it a manuscript here. Well, so well, tell us what the difference right, is. Is yeah. there any? How does well, it work, really, Henry? Well, really, a paper is something that's published. A manuscript is something that isn't published. Ah. It's the raw ingredients. And one of the jobs uh -huh. of editors is to turn one thing into the other with the guidance of the referees. So uh, what happens is uh, I get, just me, about 600 submissions a year. What you saw in my lecture is, is, is expanded hugely Right. I mean, the, the team just of biologists now, when I started, was six, and now it's nearly 20. Wow. Um, so the process because... starts with you, Henry? 
that yeah, well, they, well, he's one happened, of many editors. Yeah, I'm one of well, oh, what is that okay. the manuscripts come in? They're all submitted electronically now. Uh, yeah. They used to be submitted in the mail, but they're all electronic. And a duty editor kind of farms them out to the team, depending on their uh, specialty. Uh, now, I tend to uh, the specialties often overlap because one of the uh, 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 capacities that an editor has to have is to be interested in a variety in a wide range of fields because we often cover for each other so i do the whole of evolutionary biology uh i mean paleontology is about half of what i do i'm, wow. I'm increasingly doing archaeology we never used to do much because we're getting into the humanities um and there are a lot of really cool new methods in archaeology but i handle general evolutionary biology and all kinds of amazing things that animals and plants do and migration and biomechanics. So anything to do with animals and plants, uh, evolutionary relationships, phylogeny, but also I like to um, help out my colleagues if they're away or on vacation or, uh, you know, increasingly we've had recently uh, having to homeschool their kids during COVID. I mean, my, my kids have long since been able to uh, to fetch small, delicate objects unaided, so I worry about them. <laughs> so, so um, I have colleagues who are who ha have been very busy. So I've taken in a lot of other stuff, all kinds of you know molecular biology, cell biology. Uh, it's all fantastic, and I love to learn about new things. But what happens is people send in their findings, usually quite short, a few experiments, the finding. It has to have some conceptual novelty. It mustn't just be finding the new, the same thing by different means. It mustn't be just confirming something that's already new. Um, John Maddox said to me, uh, there are no such things these days as breakthroughs, let alone major breakthroughs. Most things are addition of, a, of one brick to a wall that's already huge. Uh, and the really important ones are two bricks at once. Wow. <laughs> so does it make you sit up and go, wow, does that's it? really... It's well, that's really, what, okay, that's part of the process. Like, oh my gosh, this is an extraordinary paper. I mean, most papers or manuscripts aren't like that, of course. Right. Uh, um, and my job is to try and decide if there's some new concept that this takes beyond what's already known. So I look through the reference list. I do a bit of detective work. I look at what the other authors have done. Um, I mean, having things like PubMed and Google Scholar these days is just phenomenal. Uh, we don't have to use our feet and go down to the library anymore. We can, it's all there. Uh, you and, said that um, you have an intuition when, when yeah. you read, all it takes is a few paragraphs yeah. and your intuition and years, 30 years of experience can tell whether a paper is going to be ripe for review. In general, yes. But of course, you know, one's intuition is never infallible. However, I've learned to trust it. And uh, someone else asked me, about this, uh, about whether using your intuition. It's just like learning about other things. Usually your first impressions are pretty reliable. There was a psychologist called Gerd Gergerenzer who wrote a book called Gut Feeling. Uh, and he actually showed by experiments that people's gut feelings about all sorts of things are usually to be relied on. Of intuition, intuit. Yeah. Hmm. You but that's also called wisdom. Well, but the problem I have, when we get a manuscript, um, unless it's just an easy send it out to referee or easy reject it, send it to another journal, 
there's a gray area in between where I like to consult with my colleagues. We circulate stuff. Uh, and that happens to most of the manuscripts. But the problem I have is putting my intuition into words, uh, is trying to say, this is why I think this is important. You have to kind of uh, articulate your feelings about it. That's actually part of the job I enjoy as a writer, is writing that, you know, what barristers would call, what lawyers would call an opinion. Uh, I, I would, and, and of course, you back it up with all the references and so on. But I, sp I spend a lot of time doing that, and then we discuss things. And of course, we do have our differences of opinion. Um, sometimes I get a manuscript which is on something that I'm really interested and close to and know a lot about compared with other things. And so I'm likely to be a bit of a fanboy. You know, really, this sort of thing might be of specialist interest. And that's when I send it to my colleagues and say, hey, I might be a bit too close to this. You as right, a... Right, you in, might be... In, Somebody yeah. knows Henry's interests and like, yeah, I maybe could well, snag old Henry is, with this is, one. Well, you know? I, I've seen the first paper that I've seen citing this current book arrived on my desk today, uh -huh. and so I'm going to say to the to I'm going to say to the author, please don't cite that scurrilous reference eight to a secondary. <laughs> yes, all book. the citations are Henry G. Oh, yeah. I think Henry. So, so no, it's usually like... just one, just one, and it's usually buried, and I have to look for it. So it sounds like you have a general consensus between your colleagues at first, and then the referees are the final. Yeah, what what are these referees? I don't get it. Can you explain? Oh that? well, basically, editorially, we're like any other magazine. Uh, you know, uh, so the, we the editors decide what we would like to see in the magazine, but we have the general interest of the reader at heart. What we're not qualified to do is judge the technical merits of it. We actually ask people at the coalface who are doing the science to look at the paper technically. The referees are working scientists, usually, and we have a database of tens and hundreds of thousands, and we're always finding more, who will, for no money... Right, uh, that's what I, I... No, there's no money involved, but basically you need to vet these papers to make sure they are correct... So you send them to colleagues interested in and knowledgeable That's about right. the same topic. That's right. Sometimes but this is also secret, so we don't know who is going to review the paper. Is that it's, true? Uh, it, it, it has been secret, but it doesn't have to be. People do sign their reviews. Um, that's up to them. Oh, and see. increasingly now, if a paper is published, we will publish the referee reports and oh. the whole correspondence to do with the file so people can see what's done on. That's quite new. Um, people, the referees can, if they will, make their identities known. But the anonymity is quite a good thing for a number of... Some people will say, I'm going to sign my reviews, whatever, which is fine. Uh, but other people, particularly if they're younger people, if they're non-tenured uh, uh, researchers, uh, would like to keep their names anonymous because quite often the uh, paper is by someone who's very senior, who might be on their tenure committee, someone they might want to work with someday. The younger referees are the ones we want to cultivate because they're actually doing the work. The, the more senior faculty spend their time at meetings, and although they often have a very grand overview, which we also need, the younger faculty pick apart papers in detail. And one reason all these people, and it's a lot of work reviewing papers for journals, but the reason people do it for free 
is what I call the do as you would be done by principle. Because ah. they expect that when they send their papers in, right. they will also be accorded that same courtesy. Right. Uh, and that's how it works. It just seems that, you know, people's lives and reputations are, you know, on the line there. It, mm, it can be really delicate and people, careers can be ruined. Oh, oh gosh, yes. You this know, is what I mean, this is, this is why we're trying to do it much more transparently than we used to. It's got to um, be bloody... Rough. Emotional. <laughs> it is. It, it certainly is. Um, Brutal, really, and, you know? Uh, we, we have to make the decision because referees don't always all agree. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I've had a paper on my desk today where three of the referees said, no, this is terrible, and one of the referees said it's fantastic. Um, but, of course, people's opinions differ. Uh, we don't take the majority. We sometimes um, overrule... Uh, Sometimes we will overrule negative referees because we think it's interesting and provocative and we'll publish it, although we're always very careful when we do that sort of thing. Um, uh, but what the referees do is they inform our decision. We have a gut feeling that a paper subject to review would be one that we should like to publish. And then, we, then we get the reviews in and then we make a decision based on the reviews, mostly the decision is to defer the decision. We ask the authors to revise their paper in right. accordance with the comments and send, uh, send a revised version in. And this can go on for several rounds of review. I imagine um, it could maybe go on for years sometimes of people uh, well, getting it, around it, to responding. It, and... it, it can do, um, but we try not to let that happen. Usually there is such a thing as flogging a dead horse. So... Um, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> So after a while, we say, hey, lads, come on. You've had your time here. Obviously, you know, shit happens and, and, you know, we can't carry on this, yeah. although we write it in a more polite way. But, um, yeah. Before we change subjects and get into the uh, origins of vertebrates, has there ever been a paper that has come across your desk in the last 30 years that was an amazing scientific discovery? Basically, what is the most amazing paper that you've ever seen in your tenure at Nature? Well, funnily enough, this is a very easy one to answer. It's the discovery of the Hobbit, the Indonesian... <laughs> oh, right. I well, laugh because you're uh, a Tolkienist. Well, yeah. that, that, yeah. uh, the, the, Indone the, the Indonesian it hominid. Yeah, it wasn't called the Hobbit then. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and... and Part of the reason it was phenomenal was because the authors didn't know what to make of it. Because a lot of what you do as a uh, looking at the original work is read between the lines. Now, most people have a pretty good idea, or quite often a very inflated idea, of the importance of their findings. But this group of Australian and Indonesian researchers had no idea what they'd found because they weren't expecting to find it. It was something like, like dropped in from space. Mm. Now, they, they were looking at a fairly well-worked cave in Flores. It had been worked for decades, although it's very big and it's, there's lots of it to dig up. And they were their interest was about how modern humans got to Australia, uh, that magic land associated with Walter Matilda and Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and kangaroos and coal lager and Crocodile Dundee and all these great things. And David Strassman. Uh, so, and, oh, ah, oh, David, David Strassman. Is, oh. David entertains in Australia. That's where oh. I work. I that's work where in, he works. Uh, I work down under. 
I love Australia. Me too. I only went there for the first time about three years ago, oh. and I could have moved there in a heartbeat. In fact, um, I, I was... Uh, our Australian office wanted me to come and work there. And while I was in Australia, I had this separate email thread with my wife, which we call the Bruce and Sheila thread, about whether <laughs> whether it would be feasible for us to go. And sadly not, it wasn't at the time. Oh. Anyway, be that as it may, what they didn't discover was uh, any evidence on modern humans, but they found this very, very strange, weird, new kind of Hominid, hominid yeah. that lived until fairly recent times uh, and what that did was throw anthropology wide open it showed that the diversity of humans recently was much much greater than anyone had imagined and that was that was wow life-changing i mean wow. i mean even more than feathered dinosaurs which kind of people expecting but this Little hominin had dropped in out of nowhere. Well, wow. when the paper came in, uh, you guys must have just been thrilled. It's, it's like well, wow. The f- then you keep the f- it under wraps, and and you well, yeah, debut but this it. Was it. It was a, it wasn't an instant hit. It was a grower. I remember <laughs> sitting there. I remember where I was sitting there reading this paper about this small-bodied hominin, thinking, you know, goodness me, in expletives, what is this? And it took me two or three reads to think, hmm, this is very strange. So I, that's when I sent it out. I mean, a new hominin, yes, but they weren't making a fuss about it. They they were really? writing oh. it as if they were kind of ashamed of it, as if they didn't know what to do. And in between the, wow. every line was, help, what is yeah. this? So really, what do we do? you had a role in realising the significance. <laughs> yes, I did. And then I sent it to a wide range of referees. And almost all of them were really excited and said, uh, this is a new species of homo, and uh, it's really exciting. But the authors need to make more of it, and uh, they need to uh, do this, that, and the other. And yeah. eventually we published the two papers in 2004, I think, uh, and um, the rest is prehistory. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, that was that's the single most important discovery, in my opinion, that has come across my desk that's very in cool. all this time. And actually, before we jump into the topic that I know Dave and I have been talking about, a topic we want to dive into with you, but has there been a spectacular mistake that you've had to well, retract? Well, that's in the lecture I watched, Ray, and he well, can go uh, on for hours on that. But and I'll yeah. just, Let me just summarize. <laughs> there have been mistakes that they regret because we're all human, and yeah. there have been uh, 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 manuscripts that were passed that went to science and that yeah. was published there. And so that's just okay. the way it is, just the way it is. There's the attrition right. rate. And, but I think the bottom line is that 5% of all submissions are, are accepted out of, out of all. Uh, yeah, about five, about five to seven uh, right. um, uh, are accepted. But, you know, we now have loads and loads of other journals in our, in our portfolio of journals. So um, we like, contrary to popular belief, we editors do like to, be, like to be nice and would like to try and find a home for your paper somewhere. I mean, most papers we get are perfectly fine. They're perfectly decent pieces of science. It's just they're not suitable for nature because they don't have that conceptual zing, that je ne sais quoi. I don't even know what that means. (laughs) Okay, Um, anyway... So what's that well, little book you're holding up there, Ray? What's that little thing well, I'm seeing this is in our the little clever camera? Se- our clever segue into another topic. Um, <laughs> as you were talking about earlier with uh, Per Alberg and the, our fishy origins, 
And this actually leads into uh, my question uh, was, sometimes you as an editor maybe get to encourage science or ask for papers or yeah. even kind of steer things in a certain way. Like, wouldn't it be cool if we figured out this mysterious, what's this link between echinoderms and vertebrates? Mm -hmm. What's going on there? Most textbooks just kind of, well, we know we're a deuterostome. It seems totally weird that we vertebrates are more closely related to echinoderms like sea stars and urchins than we are to other creatures. That's because echinoderms and vertebrates are deuterostomes, which literally means second mouth. When biologists examine the cellular embryonic stages of our lives, our anus or rear end forms before our mouth does. The same is true for sea stars, sand dollars, and icky looking sea cucumbers. Think about that one the next time you head to the beach. First, the gut, and second is the pie hole. First is the outlet, second is the inlet. First is the egress, second is the ingress. First is the a-hole, and second is the pie hole. Deuterstroms unite. And when I was getting tuned into my fishy origins, there was a little creature called Amphioxus. Mm. There's even a little song about Amphioxus, the sweet little lancelet that lives. Yeah. It looks yeah. like a little fish, but it has no eyes. Mm -hmm. does have kind of a head. It's got a backbone. And this is a fish that ex is extant It's not today. a fish. It's not oh. a fish. It's between it? a fish. It's, um, you, it's a... Cephalochordate, right? Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. the one I so, found it so in my bed last so, night. <laughs> so, no, anyways, that was, the, that was the severed horse's head. You really ought to look at it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Amphioxus, we used to think for 100 years, that's our closest relative. Then we do genome research and we find out at the genetic level, wait a minute, mm. more closely related to a sea squirt, which is a weird echinoderm cousin. It's a tunicate. Yeah lives in the bottom and it squirts out these little babies that have the hint of a backbone. Mm. We are more closely related to a sea squirt than the Amphioxus. Blew my mind. We're the spawn of, well, sea squirts, but not so much. And then I got this book, which is another book, Understanding the Origin of the Vertebrates, and my head was spinning, but then I finally kind of, I, I kind of got it last night. I finally got it like, oh. Where evolution, sea squirts went off in this direction, but uh, Amphioxus and creatures like Picaea kind of got off on the uh, off the that, branch a bit. So anyways, over to you, Henry. Sea squirts and us and Amphioxus have this little backbone-like structure uh, called the notochord, but it's kind of soft and squishy. It's got a, a membrane on the outside, and it's kind of flexible. It's like one of those long, thin balloons that entertainers twist into shapes like dashams at parties, uh, and they can spring back, only they're full of fluid uh, rather than air, and they spring it's back into shape. It's a support the, uh, for the nerve, correct? It's, a uh, it's, a, well, for the... it's more support for the muscles on each oh, side right. Right. so that the animal can swim sinuously with uh, muscles contracting and uh, uh, and relaxing at different times and places. Uh, now, the Amphioxus has one of these, and it has one all the way from the back to the front. Uh, but after that, tunicates and vertebrates have gone completely different ways, even though much more closely related. Now, basically, the vertebrates have become predatory, and in all parts oh. of their life cycle, uh, they have a notochord and they have a gut and they have a head and they have a feeding apparatus. But the, the tunicates are the same, except they've deconstructed their life cycle. Only in their larval stage do they have the notochord 
and the larva is a, basically a dispersal mechanism. It just uses its note cord and tail to swim to somewhere where the adult can settle. And it has a little, in its head, it just has a gravity-sensing organ and an eye, which is basically a light detector. The whole point of a tunicate larva is to discover which way is down mm-hmm. and, and where it is dark. So it's already trying to sense where it's yeah. at. It goes down to somewhere dark and dim, and it sticks its head to the surface, and then the whole thing metamorphoses. It loses the notochord and then becomes a feeding structure. So unlike in a vertebrate, where you have a feeding structure at one end and the notochord and the tail at the other end, the tunicate has, has the same things, but at different times. That's well, basically what happens. Why? Why does evolution favor a, a change and a metamorphosis like that? Well, it's funny. The tunicates, I think, have had the best deal because they are incredibly energy efficient. They have energy to burn. Uh, they produce. It's a very, very efficient way of doing things, and they're filter feeders. Now, there are some tunicates that remain with a notochord all their lives. Uh, there are some that don't have a notochord at all. There are some that are sexually reproducing. There are some that are hermaphrodite. There are some that are colonial. They're amazing creatures. Henry, the larvae, the larvae are uh, both male and female. I mean, how is sexual yeah, reproduction? I mean, that's yeah. what I'm wondering about. Are yeah, these I just male th- larvae? It's always sex with you, Ray. No, not uh, well, <laughs> Actually, I'm not sure if they have separate sexes. I think tunicates are, I'm not quite sure. I think they're generally hermaphrodite. Uh, and some of the tunicates have sex lives of incredible complexity. The different larval types at different times are shed in different ways. Some but of them... we know at some at some level we are related to basically the larvae of tunicates, well, the larval stage related, of tunicates. Well, mm, that was the old view. Yeah, I think it's more general now that we are related to tunicates. Now. The, the we have sus- a common ancestor, don't we? Yeah, we do. Rather than we're related to them. At some point, the ancestor of tunicates and vertebrates would have been amphioxus-like. It had would the notochord. Sort of like is Pachaea yeah. from well, the Burgess Shale? Yeah, that Pachaea is a very strange creature, and it used to be thought to be uh, very similar to the amphioxus. Uh, that's what Steve Gould, another person who's passed, um, used to say. Uh, but it was originally discovered by Simon Conway Morris, who I know. Uh, and he kept not writing it up. Um, and I asked him, Simon, I said, that's because it's his name. Simon, I, I said, <laughs> uh, why are you not writing up Pikaia? And he said, because the more I look at it, the weirder and less Amphioxus-like it gets. The more I look, uh, but, the less uh, I know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. eventually he and Jean-Bernard Caron from the Royal Ontario Museum wrote up a long description. And it is kind of Amphioxus-like, but in some ways it's not. It's like a group of organisms known from China called the Yananozoans. Which are mind-blowing, yeah. Yeah, they're a bit sort of amphioxuses. And there's another group of creatures that was found, the Vetulicolians, that look like... I've just been digging into those, the Vetulicolians. I'd love to see your artwork with those, Henry, I just Googled them this morning, and I'm like going, oh, my God, they're I'd, so I'd crazy that, looking. I'd buy that T-shirt. Okay, I'd buy I, that. I, know, work- I defer to both of your knowledge is greater than I. What do you two think is our common ancestor in the Cambrian explosion? What, what well, do you think? Well, 
It's an animal that looks something like amphiox. From the we fossil don't have record. We from don't the have fossil it. record. We well, the thing is, there are no such things as ancestor-descendant relationships in the fossil record. There's only degrees of cousinhood. But my, this is just putting myself out on a limb here. Okay. okay. Uh, on the record. This is a podcast with amateurs. Yeah. yeah, well, my very tentative suggestion is that the common ancestor of vertebrates and tunicates would have looked very like these creatures from the Cambrian called Vitulicolians. They had a distinct front end and back end. The front end was a blobby head with gill slits, and the back end was the notochord supported tail. Now, as vertebr uh, in tunicates, they basically deconstructed those two things into adult and larval stages. In vertebrates, they became integrated into a single structure. Now, Vitulicolians are thoroughly controversial creatures but I, when the first one came to sorry right you're saying i was gonna say i am uh, enthralled with them and uh, I'm, i must draw them now henry and they're so crazy looking <laughs> especially knowing that they might be our close kin yeah they're very very fascinating and how do you first, spell that v v v for victor e for echo t for tango u for umbrella um colian uh, your mother uh, is a vitula colian Vitulicolian. Yeah, she was a Vitulicolian, and your father smelt of elderberries. And what what is the unladen weight of a swallow? Uh, the um, <laughs> when when the paper on Vitulicolians first came into nature, my epiphany was: this looked like a, a hypothetical animal that the great Alfred Sherwood Romer. A paleontologist, yes, yeah, yes. hypothesized in one of his last papers in 1972. He said, Wow, he had this animal called the somatico visceral animal, that the vertebrate was basically two animals merged, imperfectly merged together. Now, he said, There's a kind of gut that's kind of been enveloped by a body which is basically locomotory, and you can see traces in that today. Which this idea explains some weird stuff such as the gut has a nervous system it has as many neurons as the spinal cord but it runs differently it has different neurotransmitters and it only links up to the uh, spinal nervous system by little synapses in the body like kind of frontier staging posts uh, so and you can tell that the nervous system of the gut is quasi-independent every time you have food poisoning and have to rush to the lavatory mm -hmm. because you have no conscious control of it. Also, there are some nerves in the brain, the cranial nerves, that have some weird directions. There's the vagus nerve, cranial nerve 10, I think, yes, which snakes and innovates tissues deep in the viscera. Um, which suggests there's been some deep, deep in the past, there's been some strange movements between the head end and the tail end. Uh, so I explain all this in Across the Bridge. Um, so my suggestion, hypothesis, basically sitting at the bar with a pint and some peanuts idea, is that the, the common ancestor of vertebrates and tunicates would have looked like a vitulicolian, but it's hard to say. Uh, that's the closest I get. And I, I am inspired by that, and uh, I want to make a segue now.
Henry, have you ever seen this book, Life Story? No, I, I haven't. I haven't. This is a book from, I believe, 1962 called Life Story. Mm -hmm. And it's written as a bedtime story about the history of life. It's beautifully yeah. illustrated, yeah. written and illustrated by a woman by the name of Virginia Lee Burton. Mm. She does a beautiful graphic uh, oh, at the front. Oh, isn't that lovely? I might and have she, seen that graphic somewhere. She's an extraordinary, but you know, I couldn't help but kind of think of your book, an extraordinary book, A Very Short History of Life on Earth. Are you 4. insinuating 6. plagiarism, Ray? No, I am not, By Sarah. the editor of Nature? I am insinuating <laughs> parallel evolution. Yeah. No, it, is that, uh, yeah, it is parallel. But all artists steal and all scientists get it from somewhere, right? But mm. anyways, this is an extraordinary book. I love the very opening line, too, is once upon a time, a giant star was dying. And I love the way it ends, too, not to give it all away, but the earth abides. Mm. Anyways, what, where did this book, what's the origin story of this book? It, it is written sort of, I love the tone of it. What book are we talking about, Ray? We are talking about a very short history of life on Earth, 4.6 billion years in 12 pithy chapters. With our guest, Henry wrote this book. Where did this come from, Henry? What's, what's the origin story? Well, uh, as you know, there are all sorts of treatments about life on Earth, and uh, my inspiration was actually... Uh, the great David Attenborough, who's still with us. Today. He is still with us, yes. Um, and uh, when I was a teenager, he did one of his great television series called Life on Earth. And it was magnificent. Nothing like it had been seen before. This was the one which he ends up talking about the gorillas while sitting in front of them. And here I am sitting, talking in front of the gorillas, and this is the origin of family life. But uh, that was the bit that people remember. Uh, but it was the majestic sweep of the whole of life with the most fantastic visuals and the most incredible music and this slow magisterial treatment. And that inspired me to get into zoology and biology and a lot of other people, I would imagine, so in the back of my mind for years has been an idea that I'd write a, a little simple book called Henry's History of Life on Earth, where I just tell the story, just a narrative, starting once upon a time and going through the history of life on Earth. Now, I don't have any pictures in it, I wanted because there are loads of other books with pictures, uh, and uh, I'm not a pictures kind of guy. I was disappointed. Guy. I was disappointed. There was so, so many species names that you mentioned and i'm like i never heard of this and, and i wanted google. to turn the page and and see it and so i had to uh have google mr dr google well open. as ray will know pictures are not actual fact that there's a difference between true, a, true. a a restoration and a recreation well, you could say artist conception yeah, well you? yeah but you see the the writer has an artist conception too um and you know i've worked with a great artist who ray will know called louise gray on yes. a book several years ago called a field guide to dinosaurs a publisher put me and louise together to do it and louise has a very particular view about dinosaur life and dinosaur evolution you know, Luis is a very flamboyant character, and his dinosaurs look like they're going to the fiesta. They're <laughs> feathered, beautifully coloured, amazing. And and I had to write to keep up with it, but we were both very clear that this book, A Field Guide to Dinosaurs, was a work of fiction because we know actually very little 
about dinosaurs and if you could get a time machine and go back to the Mesozoic they might have looked even weirder than we can Probably did, yeah. imagine so Ray when you're recreating a species you you you've got to take a view about what you think it was like and there's a certain amount of artistic license always is yeah Right. So maybe in the future there will be a slightly longer history of life on Earth with pictures. Who knows? Or the children's book version of it. Well, bedtime that, story. That that might also happen. Well, I have I an wonder... idea. How about you do a children's book and Ray, you illustrate it? Well, that's. <laughs> a, I was thinking about that. Let's I, talk. I, let, let, let's talk. In in the UK, they made it as a kind of standard sized book, but in the US, they made it at this really nice, what they call a gift size book which it's a stroke of brilliance. You could put it in an inside pocket, carry it around. Yeah, it's, it's nice and compact, and it yeah. reads so easily. I, I absolutely loved it. I love the language in it. I love the sort of sly sense of humor. And your quotes are exquisite. The quotes, I wrote up pages <laughs> of the, my favorite quotes mm -hmm. in the book, you know. Well, read one. What is your, one of your favorites? One of my favorite quotes, Henry, is this one uh, toward the end. All happy, thriving species are the same. Each species facing extinction does so in its own way. And mm. obviously, you're riffing on Tolstoy there. I love that one. But but then you go on to say you actually throw in an extra billion years in the book, which I think is really yeah, great. Yeah, so I, I had that I, for no money. Actually, no, no extra money. Free. No extra money. You free. threw There's in an extra... A like, three billion years. The next billion years, what's going to happen? But you do say within the next few thousand years, Homo sapiens will have vanished. The causes will be in part the repayment of an extinction debt that is long overdue. I love that extinction that's, debt. That's pretty grim, Henry. But then you mm. do go on to say the earth, do not despair, the earth abides and life is living yet. But extinction debt. And have we already pulled the trigger on that? Define it. Yeah, what is it? Extinction debt, some people have called it dead clayed walking. Hmm. Uh, and it came from a very theoretical paper that we published in Nature. I think I was the editor in 94. Uh, from the school of the late Bob May and a very young theorist called Martin Nowak. Uh, and uh, it posits the idea that there are millions and millions and millions of species on the earth, but really there are only two. There's dispersers, which when they see any sign of trouble, run away, run away, run away. And then they're compet dominant competitors, which when they get to a patch of habitat, they stay there and dominate it. And they're the ones that look the most successful. There are loads of them. They're living very happily. But in this paper called Extinction Debt, you just have to eat away at a tiny bit of habitat. And the dominant competitor, the most dominant competitor, will become extinct no matter what you do. And it will do that before the other ones that look more widespread. Hmm. So it, it struck That's me. That's because they exhaust the resources in their habitat. Yeah, and they don't run away uh, and do things. Uh, uh, and they, um, it struck me that these days we only live in one habitat patch. It's not a, which is the Earth, and we are the dominant competitors. And human beings sequester between twenty-five percent and forty percent of all the production that plants produce. And I learned another statistic recently from a lovely new book which is coming out soon by a man called Tom Halliday, which is also a kind of history of life on Earth, that in terms of mass, humans and domestic animals take up 96% of all the mass of all mammals, all yes. terrestrial mammals only. So uh, everything else, all the other giraffes and elephants and, and antelopes, 
but they're just squeezing to the final 4%. So we look like a dominant competitor. Now, I'm not sure. I, I wrote a, and there are all other reasons to suggest that human beings are, are on, that human species is on its way out and soon. And I wrote an article recently in Scientific American about it, which has scared the pants off everyone in several different languages, if you Google it. Oh, editor of Nature thinks we're all doomed. Well, What's I the name of it? Name of the article? It's, I can't, I can't remember. Well, look it up, Henry G. Yeah. Extinction all doomed. I mean, it's all over the net like a cheap suit. Uh, the, um, <laughs> so, and there are a number of reasons which I don't go into in, the, in this book, um, which I've thought about since I wrote the book, like um, uh, demographically, the world population is, the, the population growth is slowing down. It's half what it was in 1960, in the mid-60s when Ehrlich wrote The Population Bomb. And in fact, the replacement rate in many countries is well below the death rate. And that's not just in the affluent West, that is in many countries, even countries that we patronisingly call the developing world, that is also true. And so the world population is going to peak, reach zero population growth in 2060-something. And in the next century, we'll start to decline and may decline very rapidly, partly because we'll have run out of resources. And there are also other things that I've put together that seem to be part of the same syndrome, although I have to watch for confirmation bias. One is that in the US and the UK, per capita energy expenditure peaked in the 70s. Although it's generally going up because there's more capita to be per, there are more people. <laughs> Um, it peaked in the 1970s. Per capita, and in fact, right. yeah, in the UK, per capita energy expenditure declined by a fifth since the year 2000, which is astonishing. So, and this has not been driven by top down uh, directives. No, it's this is driven by innovation. Well, it's been driven by innovation, also need, because we have less resources than we used to. We have to go further with, we have to do more with less. We are being forced to do this. I'm hoping to have a chat with some scientists about whether I've interpreted extinction debt correctly. But my feeling is that our card is already marked and we're ready for the exit sign. I'm not quite sure when, but I think it might be within 500 to 1,000 to 2,000, something in the, not very long in evolutionary times. You did have another quote saying that uh, humanity could last for another million years, maybe, if we start figuring it out. We could, but you see, the thing about human beings is we're just mammals and, yeah. you know, mammals tend to have... So in many ways, we're an exceptional species, but that means the future's hard to predict. I mean, somebody said, you know, nobody knows who, that prediction is very hard, especially about the future. Um, <laughs> and humans are not the regular mammals. We could all snuff it next Tuesday, or we could you go You do on. say that, yes. Yeah, or we could go... Or it could be Wednesday, I mean. Yeah. You know, uh, but Or we could go on for a long time. Uh, and one thing I didn't do is in the book because it was about the history of life on earth and not the history of life on elsewhere was look at space travel colonization of space and one of the reasons i didn't do that was because once we've done that for a bit we'll cease to be human we'll be lots of species diverging um uh, but i think uh, the only way to escape our fate is to 
go into space and live in little habitats, like hollowed out asteroids and such. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, and we'll all look like Elon Musk or Richard yeah. Branson. Well, or sadly, well, you know. it's beyond our lifetime. So yeah. all we well, can do is... Uh... Well, that, it's, a, it's a funny thing, you know. When I was five, another book I saw when I was five was one in the school library called You Will Go to the Moon. And, uh-huh. you know, when we were kids, everyone thought we'd all go into space. So, But only 12 people have ever visited the moon and none since 1972. And so, one in a year or two. Yeah, two in a so, year or two. But, yeah. but this is it. This is it, you see. One thing I say in the book is technological change. Sometimes you get new innovations that come up from somewhere and then they die out for thousands of years. But the bow and arrow was one. Um, and then you get a pressure of population where the new innovation comes back and then it kind of sticks. And it could be that now is the time for space travel to at last become... Common. Well, less less infrequent. Uh, space travel is no longer the exclusive preserve of governments. Private individuals are doing yeah. Of course, private yeah. individuals can do what the hell they like, and they are doing. They're yeah. f- flying Teslas into orbit and other such things well it's been an absolute delight uh, shooting the shoot the breeze here yeah. with you and, and exploring all these ideas and yeah wondering about the fate of the planet and our place in it but henry if right you <laughs> and if then i you have could, a question after this if you could get in the old time machine and go back to an epic epoch to a favorite paleo period to some sort of point in the past in the awesome age of long, long ago, when would you go back to and what would you want to see? Triassic, the Triassic period. Um, The Triassic is unjustly neglected because the dinosaurs originated. And one thing I found when writing about the Triassic, were there all these amazing creatures that were completely bonkers, drepanosaurs, Sharavipteryx, all these weird reptiles, you know, turtles, pretend turtles, half turtles, <laughs> mock, mock turtles, teenage mutant ninja turtles, all kinds of turtles already. Uh, the first vertebrates that flew or glided, um, stuff that really makes no sense as fossils, like long disclaimer. I'd love to see what was that was like. The first mammals. Um, the first marine reptiles. Lots and lots of those. Uh, yeah. You know, don't get me started. I mean, tons of them. The biggest marine reptiles that ever lived, Shonisaurus, the huge, huge ichthyosaur. Uh, pachy- pachypleurosaurs, placodonts, uh, thalatosaurs, and nothosaurs. So uh, that's why I wrote, a, I wrote a chapter called Triassic Park, it was the biggest cavalcade of completely lunatic uh, splendor that ever lived. Um, and uh, I would like to bang the drum uh, for, for the Triassic, which I think is unjustly neglected. If you could stand on a shore or in a boat, what, what would you particularly like to see on a particular day in the Triassic? Oh, well, I'd quite like to, um, uh, to sun myself in the beautiful tropical Tethys Ocean and uh, see some these gigantic ichthyosaurs swim past. I'd like to see Tanistrophius, this strange creature with a very, 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 very unfeasibly long neck, actually do things, necking, do, do things <laughs> with it. Um, uh, and and uh, uh, longest guama in the sky. Longest guama, yeah, well, who knows? I mean, yeah. just... <laughs> I think if uh, you know God was on acid in the Triassic, after the Permian, where everything was almost wiped out, life came back with a rousing 
Bronx cheer and two fingers up at the earth and, and just became even more wacky. <laughs> I'll quote crazy. you. I'll quote you. You said, when life came back after the Permian catastrophe, almost all life was wiped out, and it came back with this completely barking, mad, riotous carnival of diversity. Yeah. I, I mean, I'd love to go to the classic. I really enjoyed looking at you on YouTube. and You mentioned in a previous interview that the last century something has occurred that has never happened in the entire history of animal life, and that's the emancipation of the female sex. Yeah, it's been ab absolutely... It's the single most important yeah. con contributor to civilization. Yeah, uh, because... even, even more, I say this, even more than the fixed-price menu in French restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> And for most of human evolution, women were pretty much baby-making machines from the mm. time they were able to give birth until the time they no longer could, pretty much their whole lives, respectively. Mm. But it's only recently that some women in some societies have control over their own bodies, increased participation in politics, holding substantial leadership roles in corporations and government. And so in the last chapter of your book, you say that that... The future of life on this planet and the course of humans have only a few tens of thousands of years before we are extinct, preceded by a grand decline. So in that interview, you state that the emancipation of women has created innumerable benefits to society, which I wholeheartedly agree upon. But the management of this decline will be made less catastrophic by the involvement of the emancipated woman. Mm. So this is a dire yet hopeful in the same breath. Can you please discuss this revelation and how that management of our decline by women will be less catastrophic. Since women have joined the polity of humans, there have been a doubling of the workforce uh, and increasing educational standards, increasing longevity, uh, more people will stay in school. The general affluence of human beings in all countries has generally increased over the past century. You know, women are the uh, sex that produce offspring and they have government over their own bodies quite rightly so and they for good or ill tend to be the ones more involved in child rearing than men and uh, they will ensure that children will be educated more now here's something from the un sustainable development goals in 1970 one in five children completed elementary education. Now it's like two in five or three in five, or um, in fact, in, by 30, 2030, it'll be everyone. Um, and the worry will be people staying in school after second, after elementary education. Uh, this, this is in all countries, all over the world, uh, not just developed ones. Um, and this is a direct result of the female say in the way that human beings conduct their business and the way we do Brilliant. things. So there is a bit of hope. Uh, praise, yes. Praise your mother. The future is female. The yeah. future is, is, is definitely female and quite right too. That's all to, all to the good. But I think there are a lot of things move, undercurrents moving that we're not necessarily aware of. Um, and I doubt that I'm the first person to think of them, but actually having a kind of paleontological perspective I think has helped me get a longer view on things, whether they're right or not. But it's it's helped me to think in those terms. Brilliant. 
wow, Henry, um, my mind is blown or my notochord is blown. I don't know which one, <laughs> but they're kind of the same. But it is so cool to have finally met you and hung out with you for you know a while here today and man i want to get over to england sometime and let's go fossil hunting or something and i'd, I'd love i'd love to come back to come to alaska oh, we'll come to oh, alaska here we go. and, and yeah. i'm going to uh, start drawing vetulicolians oh, i'd love to see that by the score oh, yeah. and we'll have yeah. them on your page here at uh oh, fantastic. henry thank you so much you're very welcome ray you're very welcome dave it's been such a blast cheers it's been great well, okay, who says science is dull? <laughs> we went all over the place there, but you know, we got through all the stuff we wanted to talk about. It was, yeah. he's the editor of this, the most important scientific journal in the world. We just had him on Paleo Nerds. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, well, get over your fanboy thing. But the thing is, he's a paleontologist as well. And, you know, having read so many thousands and thousands of paper, he has a general knowledge of, of life uh, on this planet. What is so cool about Henry's book is that there are all these uh, annotations all throughout it. So little numbers, you know, so you look in the back and there's all these, the latest scientific papers are all listed there. Right. So if you want to go drilling deeper into any topic he brings up, he's got a reference and a paper listed in the back. So I, have I wonder book. if they came across his desk at Nature, too. Well, yeah, you know? actually, most of them did. If He's, he's aware yeah. of all the science papers happening in the world. So, I mean, and... What a fun guy. I had never known that a paper was something that's already been published, but a manuscript is what it is before it becomes a paper. Very cool. We learned about the scientific process, and um, yeah. Yeah. What a fun, uh, fun interview, and uh, we went down the Echinoderm amphioxus hole and got Yeah, kinda... that was great. Uh, and tell me the name of that thing again, a Volalopiodine? Vitulicolians. V, with a V, starts yeah. with a V for Victor. V E T U L I C O L I Vitulicolians. I'm gonna have some links as to what those are. Dave, they look so crazy, and they, I, once I see so we'll them, describe it before I Google it. Well, it, it it looks like a little can opener with a fin, and then this weird <laughs> twisted tail, and weird. The thing is, it's we're cousins to them, man. We're cousins, and right, our cousins right. look pretty weird, and I. There's, wow. And this is how it is as an artist. Like, artists like me, I see something so cool, so weird, so wonderful, I must draw it. So I must. Right. All right, buddy. Uh, great, great interview. Uh, well done and all your homework you sent my way. I appreciate that. And you did that. some homework too. And, wow. Uh, this is our 52nd episode of Paleo A whole Earth's year's worth. One, a whole year's worth. That's right. Well, it's been longer than a year we've been doing this, but... Of course, but... We have. Hey, what a great, uh, what a great milestone. One a week. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Onward. All right, buddy. I see you on the next time okay, around. Man. And this is Dave in Ojai saying hi. <laughs> it's Ray and Catch a Can saying, How many catchers can you catch in a catch, catch, catch a can? I don't know. Anyways, see ya. I don't know, but I'll ask I'll ask her once. Nebraska again. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time.
Yeah.